sermon about risk. Now, I'm not talking about one of the greatest board games ever made where you try to take over the world, although that's also called risk. I want to talk about risk in the sense of, of where we, we do something, understanding that things might not turn out the way we want them to. That's a risk, right? Now, even as I say that, I recognize that there are some in this space who you might be risk junkies, adrenaline junkies. You, you might even be considering taking sometimes like needless risk, like jumping out of planes. Some of you do that, or, or <laughs> you'd like to, to drive really fast, and you, you're a go-kart racer, or you do different things. There are things that people do that are, that are risk, and some are measured risk. Sometimes people take reckless risk, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about taking reckless risk. I'm talking about righteous risks. I have great respect for people who take these kinds of risks. Doctors who are in places where uh, there are diseases like Ebola and, and, and diseases that we know could kill a person rather quickly, but yet they still go and they, they serve there, putting their life at risk. Or our civil servants, our police officers, and our firefighters who will go into a circumstance where in order to help someone else, maybe against a perpetrator in a, a burning building, and they'll risk their own life to help save someone else. I have great respect for people who do that. Soldiers who defend our country run into the battlefield to face our enemies, run understanding the huge risk that they're taking, but they do it anyway. I want to ask you the question, when it comes to your faith, when it comes to God, what risks are you willing to take? This is a question that's worth thinking about in a series called Dangerous Sermons. And in this series, we've been looking at a number of, of characters where we've already reviewed the story of, of Jesus and his risky sermon and how that people tried to kill him at the end of his preaching one time. And today I want to continue on that journey through some of these dangerous sermons. You know, the first time I asked you a couple questions, I said it was important, if we're going to understand last week's uh, sermon, it was important to understand these questions. Do you love God and do you trust God? That was important to that first dangerous sermon. And we asked that and we made, it made us really think about that. That's what Jesus was challenging his people. Do you really trust God enough to, to embrace that God might have a plan beyond just what you've heard so far? This week, we have two new questions to ask. <laughs> These time, this week, the questions are, are questions that are also somewhat dangerous, controversial. The first is this, do you believe Jesus is God's plan to save the world? Do you believe that? Because that in itself is a risky proposition. You know what Jesus said? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus wasn't just saying he was another way to heaven. He was saying, I'm the only way to heaven. And that was not a popular statement. So for us today, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we believe that Jesus is God's plan to save the world? The second question is somewhat like the first. And that is the question about risk. If I really believe the first is true, if I really believe Jesus is God's plan for the world, <clears throat> then how much am I willing to suffer? 
Or how much am I willing to endure in order to share God's plan with others? This was the question that was before Paul. Now, we've spoken recent months in our sermon series about the conversion of Saul to Paul. Saul had been the persecutor of the early church. Jesus had met him on the road to Damascus in a vision. He'd been stricken blind. A man went to him and helped restore his sight. And when his sight was restored, then Saul became, he was baptized and became a follower of Jesus instead of an enemy of Jesus. When Jesus and Saul were conversing, Jesus said, I will show you, Saul, how much you'll suffer for me. And indeed, Saul, or as he would later come to be called Paul, would suffer greatly. He would take a lot of risks for the message of Jesus. So I want us to enter into the risky sermon. I want to listen to the first thing he says. We're going to look at, at some passages of Scripture and I want you to hear Paul's message. I want you to hear the dangerous sermon he preached, and then we'll consider the consequence as we move along. If you have your Bibles, you might turn to Acts 13, and we'll begin reading this in the 14th verse where it tells us about his journey, and it says, from Perga, Paul and his friend Barnabas went on their, on their journey to Sidon and Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they entered a synagogue and they sat down. Remember, that's the same way Jesus' sermon had begun at the synagogue. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to Paul and Barnabas, saying to them, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. And here's the beginning of his dangerous sermon. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Now, Paul does something that's really instructive and very important as he starts the rest of this sermon. He begins not by focusing on what Paul thinks. He begins by focusing on what God thinks and on what God has done. Now, I want you to hear this. If the risks that we are taking involve what God is doing, we're in a pretty safe space. It's a righteous risk, not a reckless risk. And he's going to begin his journey focused wholly on God. Listen to how much these, uh, Paul talks about God in this, in this opening sermon. Verse 17 says, the God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. God chose. God made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, God led them out of that country. For about 40 years, God endured their conduct in the wilderness. And God overthrew seven nations in Canaan. And God gave them land. He gave them their land as an inheritance. Now all of this took God about 450 years. And after this, then God gave the people judges and the judges ruled and helped the people until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then the people asked for a king. And God gave them King Saul, the son of Kish, or the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. And after God removed Saul, God made David their king. 
And God testified concerning David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as God promised. Paul began by giving a quick recap of the history of the nation of Israel, and he told them, listen, everything that's happened has pointed toward one person, towards Jesus. And he focused totally on the work of God. Jesus was God's plan, Paul was saying. Now before the coming of Jesus, Paul went on and said, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And as John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose that I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. So fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is, that, it, is, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. Now hear me, Paul writes, the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. That is, they didn't recognize him as the Messiah. Yet in condemning him to death on a cross, they fulfilled the words of the prophet that are read every Sabbath. And though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, then they took him down from the cross, and they laid him in a tomb. Contrast what they had done with what God had done before and what God would do after. But God, and boy, that's a powerful phrase in verse 30. Everything changes with God. But God raised Jesus from the dead. Now for many days, Jesus was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, and they are now his witnesses to our people And we tell you good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children. He rose Jesus from the grave. As it is written in the psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And so it also stated elsewhere, You will not let your Holy One see decay. And here's where the message begins to get powerful, for they know where David is buried, and as they hear these words about their ancestor, they're very familiar with their ancestors, and they know the story of Jesus, although they haven't yet been able to make complete sense of it. Now Paul tries to help them make sense of it with these words. Now listen, he says, when David had served God's purpose in his time, he fell asleep, He was buried with his ancestors, and David, although he was a great and glorious king, David's body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that it is through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Let me just read that to you again. (laughs) Talk about a dangerous sermon, right? 
Paul's preaching Jesus is the only way for us to have forgiveness of our sins. But listen to his words. Through Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. That's an important statement. A justification you were not able to under not able to obtain under the law of Moses. He was saying to them, Jesus is greater than Moses. Now that was troubling to some. Probably still troubling to some even today. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. For the prophets warned, look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Now, as Paul and Barnabas, after he had finished preaching, were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath day. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas talked with them, and they urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath day, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And here's where the sermon takes its ugly turn. But when the Jewish leaders, the same ones that had opposed Jesus, the same ones who had hired Saul to be a thug and go out and get the Christians, those same leaders were in the crowd. And when they saw the crowd that these Christians were, were garnering as they came to preach, those same Jewish leaders that had been jealous of Jesus were jealous now of Paul and Barnabas. It says those leaders were filled with jealousy, and they stood up, and they began to contradict what Paul was saying. They began to heap abuse on Paul. Now Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly and said, we had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles who were there heard this, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but those Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And they expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning, and they went to Iconium. Even so, the disciples were filled with joy. We could go forward in chapter 14, and we'd read that this dangerous sermon follows Paul. In chapter 14, it says that at Iconium, they began to preach. The people were were touched, verse 2 says, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Verse 5 says, things got so bad there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and the Jews together with their leaders to mistreat Paul and Barnabas and to stone them. Verse 6 says that Paul and Barnabas found out about it and they fled to the city of Lystra and the Derby. But they continued to preach the gospel. Two towns, two attempts on their lives, but they continued to preach. 
So they go into the city of Lystra, and they get there, and it says in verse 8 uh, that there was a person who was paralyzed. He was lame, and they heal him. And when he heals them, the people in the crowd, they get all excited, and they, they begin to praise Paul and Barnabas. They say, Zeus is here, Hermes is here, and all kinds of crazy things happen. And Paul and Silas try to shut them up and calm them down and point their direction, not to false gods, but to the creator of the world. The part I want to focus on, though, comes in verse 19. The two towns they'd been in where people wanted to kill them, Antioch and Iconium. And here they are in this town, and it says in verse 19, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they won the crowd over, and they stoned Paul, and they dragged him outside the city. That's a dangerous message. It's countercultural. We understand something. This idea about Jesus was new. They understood the, the traditions of Judaism well. But the idea that Jesus was God's plan for the world was hard for them to accept. And their leaders were stirring the people into an uproar. When someone says something that we don't want to hear, we're tempted to do the same kinds of things, although we don't necessarily do them by picking up rocks to throw them at someone. But we are quick to say, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to think about that. These leaders did not want this message to go forth. Think about that. If you believe that Jesus is God's plan for the world, then you too have a dangerous message to share in the world. And it wasn't popular for Paul or for Barnabas, and it's still not always popular for you. Paul was stoned almost to death. In fact, they didn't stop throwing rocks at him, it says, until they thought that he was dead. But I love what verse 20 tells us. And the disciples gathered around Paul. And when they gathered around them, whether this was a miraculous thing or it's just how it turned out, Paul got up. Check out these next five words. He went back to the city. He went back. He went back. Talk about a dangerous, risk-taking message. They just tried to kill him. Instead of running away and saying, I'm never going back there again, he got right back up again, and he went back to the city. Why would you do that? Why would you take that kind of a risk? Because Paul understood that just like the firefighter who runs into a burning building, that this world is on fire in a sense. It's headed for destruction. And the task of God's people is to run to people who are dying, whether they know it or not, and to get them to safety. And the only safety for the world is Jesus. So what about you? Do you believe that Jesus is God's plan to save the world? And how much are you willing to endure to share God's plan with others? You see, Jesus and Paul weren't the only ones who were called to share a dangerous message. When you said, I believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, you were making the same confession that Paul had made and others before him. I believe he's the promised one. I believe he's God's plan for the world. If you're a Christian, you went on to say the words, and I accept him as my Lord. I accept him as my Savior. If you believe that, if you meant that, then you have believed a dangerous sermon. You have believed a dangerous message. And you are called also to share that message. There are times in the world where that message is viewed as good news. In the beginning of the church at Pentecost and those few weeks and months after that, people received the message of Jesus as good news. But as we see in the book of Acts, it didn't take long for good news to turn to dangerous news. Still important, but dangerous to share. So the question for those Christians and the question for us today is, will we keep on sharing anyway? Will we keep on sharing anyway? So let's get very real for a second. Right? You might get fired for talking about Jesus at work, but you, you probably won't face death, at least not right now, for talking about Jesus in our, in our country anyway. We have brothers and sisters in other countries who do, but that's not the circumstance for us. So what is it in this place then? If the risk for us is not people picking up and throwing stones at us, what is the thing that we fear that might keep us from telling others about Jesus? I know that that fear is real. I've experienced it. In fact, I've been a part of the church for a long time, and what we've done in churches is we've tried to make it as easy for people to share the story of Jesus as we can. In fact, what we kind of have come to do is we've, we've said, just invite your friends to church, and we'll let Marty tell them about Jesus. Or invite them to church, and we'll let someone else tell them about Jesus, so you don't have to. Just invite them to church. It seems so friendly. But you know what's really fascinating? If you were to read the whole of the New Testament, do you know what phrase you will never hear or you'll never find in the New Testament? Invite your friends to church. You'll never find it there. It's nowhere in there. Now, the concept is very true. It's good. In fact, we've helped build this church on that concept, Right? No, the message of the New Testament is tell people about Jesus. That's the message you tell them about Jesus. There's another thing that you'll find if you start to dig into scriptures that I think is a good response, a good first step for us if we want to be dangerous Christians and we want to share this message with the world. It's kind of interesting to me how Jesus chose to help us navigate the dangerous waters. Now stick with me for just a second here because it's going to feel like a change at first because it feels so non-threatening. What Jesus modeled to his disciples on the night before he was betrayed was he brought them all together to a, to a place for a meal. Remember this? He invited them to dinner. That's what Jesus did. And then if we go into the book of Acts and we look at those early Christians in Acts chapter 2, and as they were sharing, what did they do? They broke together in their homes bread with glad and sincere hearts. They invited people into their homes, to their table for dinner. 
If we go across the whole of the New Testament, we read the opening introduction to the letters that are written. Guess who they're written to? It'll say things like, this letter is written to Chloe and the people who she has invited into her home and the church that meets in her home who sit at her table. All across the New Testament, of all the things, what these Christians did, the risks that they took, they invited people into their homes to their table for dinner. You know, when we come into a place like this, all you see are the backs of the heads of the people in front of you and then whoever's on the stage. But when we sit around the table, we see each other eye to eye, face to face. In this venue, only a few of us have a voice. Oh, anybody could stand up and talk, but that's not what usually happens. But have you ever noticed that around the table, in conversation, we all have a voice, don't we? We all have a chance to share. It's natural. It's normal. The danger, the danger that these Christians in our first century, the danger they had was a message that was dangerous. But the way they delivered it, <laughs> they delivered it over sharing meals together. You want to be a dangerous Christian? You want to embrace what the early church did? I know this doesn't sound so kosher in the COVID era, but invite someone to dinner and talk about Jesus or talk about faith or talk about what God's doing in your life and in the world. You might think that seems foolish. But friends, that is the methodology that won the world over for Jesus. And if you don't think that's God's plan, then look to the end and know what happens when we get to heaven and what God does. He invites us to his banqueting table. You've thought about that? It's familiar. It's where we've always been. All those risk takers who shared their tables and shared their lives with others go to heaven. And what happens there? We're seated again at God's table. Here we know in part, but then we shall see him, the Bible says, face to face. How awesome. How awesome. So I want to ask you again, do you believe Jesus is the only plan that God has for the world and what are you going to do to share that plan? Now, it might be that you're here today and you've never yet given your life to Jesus Christ. You've never yet said yes to Jesus. Friends, this is your opportunity. The message that you heard Paul preach is still true. If we come to Jesus, believe in him, confess him as our Lord and our Savior, our faithful and Christian baptism, he promises to forgive us of all of our transgressions, of all of our sins. He promises to fill us with the indwelling of God's Spirit, God living in us. And most importantly, he promises that we will not taste the horrors of hell. No, we will sit at the banqueting table of heaven forever with him. If you've not made life's most in important decision, I encourage you to make it now as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation. Mm -hmm.